Uh, Would you bow with me? Father, we do come before you today and we thank you for this opportunity you've given us to worship you, to praise you, to declare your excellencies, to give you the glory due your name. And I pray, Lord God, as we come into your word, to look at it, Lord God, to hear it, uh, that you would prepare our hearts, that we would be ready to allow your spirit to use your word to help us understand your will, that we would be changed, and that we would respond, and that we would uh, be glorifying to Christ, through Christ. Father, I do pray for this time that you would uh, bless it, and that uh, when all is said and done, our hearts will be changed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the reality is, if you're a human being, this life is difficult. We all understand that. We all enter into difficulties. Uh, sometimes there's good days, sometimes there's bad days. But we, we enter into difficulties. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ... We also enter into difficulties, and there are some new difficulties that arise because of following Jesus Christ. Now within that, some of the difficulties we go through are because of our own sin. We do the wrong thing, we suffer for it, uh, we confess it, we get right with the Lord, but there are consequences, there are difficulties in our lives. And we as believers experience difficulties, and sometimes within that we could be wondering, why is this life so hard? Why is it so difficult? And we've been looking through the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, and we've seen the answer to that. We've seen the answer for believers is that God is using every circumstance in our lives, if we're willing to allow him, if we don't forget his truth, to change us, to educate us, to chastise us if necessary, to cause us to be more like Christ. He is a good father who who lovingly disciplines his children, and he does it that we would share his holiness, that we would, uh, we would uh, be trained by the discipline and experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that everything we go through, God is doing good through that, and we understand that. But yet, the understanding of that, sometimes uh, we don't know what to do when those things come upon us. We understand the truth, but how should we respond? How should we respond to the reality of God's gracious, loving discipline in our lives? But we're going to finish our portion in chapter 12 today where we're going to look at the last two exhortations to heed on how we are to respond to God's discipline. Now, again, the context for the book of Hebrews, we have uh, uh, the author inspired by the Spirit is writing exclusively to Hebrew believers who are suffering for their faith. And because of their immaturity, immaturity and being dull of hearing, their eyes had been pulled off of uh Jesus and on to their difficulties. And they were in need of encouragement. They were in need of endurance. We see that in chapter 10, verse, verse 36. And now to exhort these believers to hold fast their confession of faith, to, to not turn uh, in, in, in discouragement, the author has been clearly pointing to the superiority of Jesus Christ throughout this book. He has argued throughout this whole book that Jesus and his new covenant is superior to the Old Covenant, which was a type and shadow of what was to come. And the author has proven in this book of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than the angels, the the messengers of the Old Covenant, that he is greater than Moses, the apostle of the Old Covenant, 
and that he is a superior high priest who mediates a superior covenant based on his once-for-all, one-time sacrifice, which brought about forgiveness of sins and access to God. And our response we saw to this in chapter 10 should be we should be continually drawing near to him. We should be hoping continually in him and loving him and serving his body. Then in chapter 11, he begins the direct encouragement of those who are in need of encouragement by showing the great testimony of those who by faith trusted what God said and endured to the end. And then we see in chapter 12, keying upon what was in chapter 11, the author writes that we are too, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, so great a cloud of testifiers throughout the word of God that testify to the fact that this race can be run with endurance, that when we trust in Jesus, believe in what he said, we will endure to the end as we say. They are testifiers, and we are exhorted then to run unhindered, to run, uh, to set aside and the sin, you know, every weight that encumbers us, and the sin that so easily entangles us, and that, that sin that has tight grip on us in the context of Hebrews is most likely the sin of unbelief. And it takes tight grip on us, although we know the truth, we don't believe the truth on a practical basis, and we become bound in that sense to that. But we saw we are to run also loosing those obstacles to faith, run with focus on Jesus alone, fixing our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of faith. And then we saw uh, two weeks ago what I mentioned earlier, that God is gracious, that he is good, that he uses all of our difficulties to train us, that these Hebrews most likely had forgotten the exhortation that was brought to them as children to not uh, despise or, or, treat, or, or treat, treat lightly or... Uh, or, or, or uh, faint at God's discipline because he loves those whom he disciplines. And it's from this point we came to see four exhortations on how we are to respond to God's discipline. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to start back in verse 12, verse 12 right now. This is what we saw last week. And then we'll move into what we'll look at today in verses 14 to 17. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb that which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And then our passage here. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." Now, you remember what we saw last week. There were the first two commands we saw in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And there was a link there. Therefore, the link between the disciplinary action of God and what uh, we are to do. Look back at verse 4, because this is what God reminds us concerning his discipline. Notice he says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against the sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. These Hebrews were tempted in their suffering to give up. They were tempted to become weary and give up. And they needed to be reminded that even through the difficulties that God allows, that God is doing good in those difficulties. He is training. He is chastising. He is bringing about education in the context of walking with Jesus Christ. That they were suffering in the context of his discipline, but it was good. That God was doing good in those things. And remember, we saw that every situation in our lives, he uses it. Whether it's because of sin, we confess God still uses it to train us. To make us like his son. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. It's for discipline. It's for God's training that you endure this stuff. You know, why endure all this hardship? It's because God is making us more like Jesus Christ. He's taking every event in our lives and he is using them to train us to trust in the Lord, to believe his word so that we would walk rightly with him. And yes, many of our situations in our lives for believers cause our cause for God to discipline us, maybe chastise us. But when we confess our sin and we experience the difficulties because of our sin, but we have a right heart before him, he uses that for good. He uses it for good. And so we see that here. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we, might, we may share in his holiness, or the idea for our good, that we might benefit. He disciplines us for our benefit. You see, if you're a true believer, you're going to be disciplined. God is going to use the events in your life to train you to make you more like Christ. And if you're not a believer, then you're, God's not doing that in your life. If you've never had a circumstance in your life where God has taken it, whatever it is, and used it to train you to make you more like Jesus, then I have a question whether you know the Lord. Because that's what God is doing through our difficulties. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 11. All discipline... For the moment, or for the present, literally, seems not to be joyful. That's true, right? It's not joyful in the moment, but sorrowful. This life is hard, right? Things that come upon us are difficult. Yet, to those who have been trained, the Greek word gumnazo, that have been trained like in a gym, you're over and over, and God is working on your heart. For those who have been trained by it, that's discipline, by the way, Afterwards, obviously, discipline, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. When God trains you through the difficulties in life, the fruit that comes out is righteousness. It's his character manifest in you. And there's peace when we're walking with the Lord. What a wonderful result. You see, we had fathers that we were disciplined by. We respected them. How much more should we subject ourselves to the Father and Spirit and live? So, brothers and sisters, when you go through difficulties, for whatever reason, subject yourself to God. If it's because of sin, confess, be forgiven. Maybe there are consequences. Maybe not. God's gracious sometimes. Or it's just difficult. Trials that have come upon you, whatever it is, subject yourself to God and let him train you to become more like Jesus. 
Now, last time we were together, we saw the first of the responses that we should have besides understanding. You know, it's important that we understand the truth, but it's also important that we act upon the truth based on that understanding. We saw in verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Therefore, in light of God's loving purposes for the difficulties he allows on his children with the end result of them becoming more like Christ, therefore, because of that, strengthen or set back up the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, the knees that are lame, in a sense, are feeble, paralyzed. It's like a runner who's frozen. You're in the race and the difficulties become too hard. Therefore, in light of what God is doing, be strengthened. Strengthen one another. Strengthen one another. God is doing good in the midst of the hardships you are temporarily enduring. He's doing a good thing. Be strengthened. Get back in the race. Focus on Jesus Christ. Get back in the race. Get your heart right again. And then remember, we saw that we should also get back on track. Look at verse 13. We saw this last week. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. We are to get on track the path of our lives. We are to make straight paths for our feet. Stop, in your, stop sinning in your unbelief and in your word forgetfulness. Recognize what God is doing through those things. Do not deviate to the left or to the right. Make straight paths. He's speaking about obedience. Obey the Lord by the power of the Spirit. And this is a command to the entire body. Entire church, make straight. You all make straight paths for your feet. Now remember, we saw this term pass spoke of, of grooves or tracks that a wheel would make that others would follow. You see, because if we're true believers, the path that we take, people are going to be watching that. We're going to see this later on also. Make straight paths. Don't deviate sinfully. Make straight paths for your feet because you know what God is doing. Don't respond wrongly to the difficulties in your life by sinning. Make straight paths. Respond rightly, knowing what God is doing, a loving God is doing. Make straight paths. And then he gives a reason why. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint. There are those who are lame on the verge of being dislocated. Well, in the context of the book of Hebrews, there have been warnings throughout Over six warnings saying, don't harden your heart. Bob read part of it earlier. For those who would identify with the body of Christ but aren't saved yet, they've heard the truth. It's convicted them. They haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. And in this group of believers, there were Hebrews who were ready to depart from the only saving truth that, that, that could save them about Jesus and go back to Judaism. It wasn't that they were saved, but that they were just turning away from Christ. They were about to be dislocated. And I think he's saying here that the consequence of not having straight paths, brothers and sisters, is that someone who doesn't know Jesus in your midst might turn away from Jesus. Very serious. You see, if we're following Jesus Christ, but we're falling apart in the trials of our lives, someone looks at that, why do I want to follow that Jesus? Make straight paths. Trust the Lord. He's faithful. He will enable you to endure. Because people are going to see those grooves, those wheel paths. That the lame, that the limb that is lame, it's hanging there, may not be separated, dislocated, put out of joint. Serious, serious, important truth, but rather that it would be, as we see in the text, healed, healed. You see, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're among Christians, 
There are true believers around you. And there are those who are truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at their lives, yes, they're not perfect, but they're trusting the Lord. And there's a real relationship with Jesus. But there are some who are maybe faltering. And you run the risk of turning someone away from Christ. Very serious thing. Instead, rather that they would be healed. Rather they would see the truth of Jesus in your life and be healed. Come to him by faith. So those are the two things we saw last week. Now let's get into our passage today where we're going to see the last two commands on how we are to respond to the difficulties in life that we know God is doing, that he's disciplining us through. I'm going to back up to verse 12 because it all comes together. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Verse 14, here's uh, the first command. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace. Pursue it. Pursue something in the midst of discipline. Therefore, pursue. Pursue. Uh, We've seen commands already. Strengthen, that means to set up right. We've seen make straight, pass. We saw it. Now the third command, pursue. 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 So you've been strengthened. You're set back up. Now you're making straight paths. Now pursue something. The term pursue speaks of making haste, pressing forward, running. It was spoken of and used in the context of dogs pursuing their prey or soldiers pursuing their enemies. It's even in a negative sense, it's translated persecute because when someone was persecuting someone, they would pursue them in a sense. It speaks of an intense focus and drive, pursuing something. When you think of people who pursue things, you think of people who are singularly minded on something. They're pursuing this or pursuing that. Well, we are to pursue something here. What are we to pursue? Two things. One, peace with all men. Two, the sanctification. Those are two things that we are to be pursuing. Things that we should be pursuing as believers. And I believe the spheres we see here, first of all, is the first sphere is with man. The second sphere is in the context of God. Pursue peace, here we go, with all men. Pursue peace with all men. You see, when things are going bad, we tend to get into conflicts. We tend to have issues with people. We tend to have sin in our lives. When we're not trusting the Lord, there tends to be struggles all around us, right? Right? I mean, when you're, when you're struggling, we're not something, we can be sinful, right? We can be sinful. But here he says, pursue peace with all men. And I think this is quite possibly, you know, a, a paraphrase of what, uh, David shares back in Psalm 34. Turn to Psalm 34. I want to read this for you. David has made it clear in other Psalms that he wants to teach transgressors the way. He wants to teach them because of his failures. He wants to teach transgressions their way because God has forgiven him. And we see in Psalm 34, verse 11, he's going to teach. He's going to teach teach them and us. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and love, length of days, that he may see good? Now here it's talking about behavior. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. And then here's our verse, I believe. Seek peace and 
pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. Hey, God's on your side when you're wanting to do what He wants you to do. He'll enable you to do it. Just choose to obey Him and He will enable you to do it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ear open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears. There's, that the context of this psalm is, is difficulty. It's difficulty, right? But God is gracious. You're going through God's discipline. Cry out to Him. Focus on the right thing. In here, pursue peace. Seek peace and pursue it. The righteous, verse 17, cry and the Lord hears and He delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. There's a humility. There's a, a brokenness. Lord God, I can't do this. You need to do it. And I trust you to do it. I trust you. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Ultimately, we'll be delivered out of every affliction. And he's actually using every one for good, by the way, if we remember what we saw earlier. So he says here, pursue peace with all men. Obviously, this is righteous behavior in the context of the fear of the Lord and trials. Now, there's no genuine true peace within relationships apart from righteousness, by the way, because sin brings about conflict and a lack of peace. Without God's righteousness, there is no true peace. You see, we didn't have peace with God until we trusted in Jesus. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is peace in our relationship because of Jesus. But also, we see in the midst of this, we should have right behavior before men. Seek peace and pursue it because God is looking out. His eyes are toward the righteous. His face is against evildoers. There's so much conflict out there, isn't there? We are to be seeking peace, brothers and sisters, seeking peace. You see the conflict all over the place. You see assuming, presuming, gossiping, not forgiving. There's all kinds of conflict based on sin. We're to pursue peace. Turn to Proverbs. I want to share a few Proverbs about conflict and, and then how to avoid it. You see, you can't pursue peace if you're in sin, if you're gossiping, assuming, presuming, not forgiving. You can't pursue peace. You're actually pursuing the opposite by default. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, six, excuse me, 16, verse 28. Notice what happens uh, with sin and how strife builds from this. Proverbs 16:28. A perverse man, what? Spreads strife. Someone was telling me last week, it's like spreading, you know, uh, jam on a, on a piece of bread. It just spreads all over. Perverse man spreads strife. And a slanderer separates intimate friends. There's no peace there. Look in chapter 17, verse 19. He who loves transgression loves strife. Wow, can you think about someone who loves transgression? Yikes. He, raises, he who raises his, his door seeks destruction. Look at Proverbs 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for any man. Keeping away from it right? But any fool will quarrel. Pursue peace, right? Proverbs 22.10. 
Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. 26.21 Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. It's the opposite of peace, folks. Chapter 30, verse 33. The end of Proverbs. Close to it. For the churning of milk produces brother, brother, butter, (laughs) not brother, right? Churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing of the nose brings forth blood. So the churning of anger produces what? Strife. You see, sin is what brings about the lack of peace. If you are angry about your circumstances, angry about those who hurt you, angry about what happened, there's going to be strife in your life. You're not going to be pursuing peace. Back up a little bit in Proverbs now. Again, we see what we should be doing. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. If you want to pursue peace, you're going to have to love one another, right? You're going to have to see them as more important than yourself. You're going to have to see them as more important. Look at chapter 13, verse 10. Don't forget this verse. Through presumption comes nothing but strife. When you make a presumption about someone's motives, whatever it might be, a situation, that's, that's called pride and it's arrogance, by the way. What the result is, nothing but strife. You have to let things go in God's hands and trust Him. So presumption comes nothing but strife. By the way, if you're presuming things, there's going to be no peace pursued. I'll tell you that right now. Just strife is going to come. But with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Look at Proverbs 15:18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Again, you got a temper, strife's coming. But the slow to anger pacifies contention and the only way to be slow to anger is to be trusting jesus to be renewing your mind about the circumstances to be praying and asking him to help you to deliver you from that temptation to let his word change your heart towards those circumstances last one in proverbs proverbs seventeen fourteen. you want to pursue peace obey god's word the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water you think of those, those, those old movies where the dam starts to break and a little water starts going out and then the whole thing goes, right? The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water. You're not going to get it back, right? So what does he say here? So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Abandon the quarrel. Pursue peace. Pursue peace. You see, folks, quarrels, conflict strife they're the opposite of peace and they are a deed of the flesh they're a deed of when we are not relying on god they're a deed when we're functioning through our own wisdom and abilities turn to galatians chapter 5 galatians 5 verse 15 but if you bite and devour one another it doesn't sound like peace does it if you bite and devour one another take care lest you be consumed by one another but i say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things you, that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are 
immorality, impurity, and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, look at this, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, all this kind of stuff, right? Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Enmities, strife, disputes, dissensions, factions. Yet when you yield to the Lord and to his will, as revealed in his word, allowing his spirit to control, there's a change. Look a little farther down, verse verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy. What's the third one? Peace, right? Peace, kindness, patience, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Now to those who belong to Christ Jesus... Now those who, have belong, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk. Let us also walk by the Spirit. If you have life by the Spirit of God, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, walk by that same Spirit. Allow Him to change your thinking, actions, and attitudes towards one another. Pursue peace with all men. Well, how do we do that, practically speaking? must be abiding in Christ, allowing his word by his spirit to change our heart attitudes towards him and towards our circumstances and towards others. Pursue peace with all men. We are pursuing the right relationship with all men, believer and non-believer, with all men. Now, it doesn't simply say, be at peace. It says, pursue it. You have to seek after it. It's a command. That means there's going to be some action within your responses to things. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to say no to the anger. You're going to have to pursue peace. Peace involves, now, sometimes we, we say, how do we do this? Because peace involves two parties. What do we do? Look at uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Just because there isn't peace doesn't mean you haven't pursued it, by the way. Doesn't mean you haven't pursued it. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, what? Be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, your side of the equation, be at peace with all men. Now, there might not be that peace on the other side of the equation. But as far as it concerns you... Look at Romans 14, verse 19. We are to be pursuing the opposite of conflict and difficulty, right? Peace. Peace in relationships. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace, right? Pursue those things. And the building up of one another. That's what we should be pursuing. Back in our passage, we should be continually pursuing peace. What about people who are abusive? What about uh, false teachers? What about the factious? How do we pursue peace with them? Seeking peace, righteous behavior and relationships doesn't mean sinning or compromising or contradicting other passages of God's word. The way to pursue peace is to obey his word in relationship to other people. That's the way to pursue peace, to obey his word you see, seeking peace doesn't mean compromise. Let me give you an example. You know, how, would you, how do we pursue peace with the factious man based on Titus chapter 3? 
We turn away from them, right? We obey God's word. How do we pursue peace with someone who is, who is coming in and, and causing dissensions and factions? Romans chapter 16. We're to turn away from them, right? That's how we pursue peace. We pursue peace by not entering into the relationship in the way that God would not want us to. We follow his word in relationship to those things. We pursue peace with those in sin by addressing sin. Galatians chapter 6. Maybe Matthew chapter 18. We pursue peace by obeying God's word, but we don't compromise. You see, love covers a multitude of sins. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. Through presumption comes much strife, right? A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. The beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. If you are married, I know we have lots of opportunities to pursue peace, don't we? Right? And the closer we get to people, we realize we are sinful. Right? Pursue peace with all men. That's everybody. Pursue it. When you are tempted to react in anger or whatever it might be concerning the circumstances or what someone has done or said, Yield to God's word, allow it to change your mind towards the circumstances, trust the Lord, and respond back the way the Lord would have you respond towards those people. Pursue peace. Pursue peace with all men. Let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you allowing God's word to change your thinking towards your circumstances and the people around you which you might have conflict with? It doesn't mean compromise. We pursue peace in the context of obedience to the word of God. Well, what else are we to pursue? What else should we be pursuing? Look back in uh, Hebrews chapter um, 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men, and then notice the term, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with all men, and, and that's continually, habitually, secondly, continually pursue the sanctification. Well, what is he talking about here? I want to pursue the sanctification. What does he mean by that? Well, we're commanded to do it, so we need to understand it, right? Right? Well, the term translated sanctification here comes from the Greek word hagiasmos, which speaks of literally being set apart. It speaks of being made holy or, or set apart. And, and indeed, it, some translations, you might even have the term instead of sanctification, holiness there. The word speaks of sanctification, being set apart from sin, Unto God to be making more like Christ. Sanctification is the process in which God takes his word by his spirit and works in our hearts and changes us. He sets us apart. Now there are two, there are two uh, realities of sanctification in scripture. There is the initial sanctification and then our ongoing sanctification. Look at the first Corinthians chapter six. We see this initial sanctification. So even though it's the same word, there are two different realities. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I love this. This is a great passage to share with those who are clearly bound in sin, who are clearly caught up in that, that God is a good God who forgives great wickedness. He forgives all sin if you're willing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. People who are in their sin and identified by it aren't going to be saved. But, notice this, this is wonderful. And such some of you were. You were this. You were. But notice what he says. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit of God. You see, when you trust in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven all of our sins. We are no longer seen by the sins that we were caught up in. We are seen through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. But that's the initial sanctification. We are set apart from our being a sinner unto God in salvation, right? But there's another sanctification that we see throughout uh, the word of God. We see, you see, and uh, turn to First Thessalonians chapter three. We're going to see that sanctification speaks of being set apart from sin, and it's His will. It's His will. It's His will for us. First Thessalonians chapter three, verse. Or excuse me, chapter four, verse three. Concerning sexual immorality, the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians, this is God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. This is God's will, his desire for you. Your what? Sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. The sanctification here is in regards to sexual immorality. To be set free from it, to be set apart from it, to be holy. And remember that sanctification is brought forth by the word of God. It's God through his word, his powerful word, that changes us. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy word. Thy word is truth. Ephesians chapter 5, we have an illustration. Turn to an illustration in the context of marriage and then in the context of the church. Christ being the, the, the husband, the church being the bride. We have an illustration of sanctification, by the way. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might, what? Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, in any such thing, so that she might be, she should be holy and blameless. First Peter chapter two. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Turn to one last passage. Second Thessalonians two thirteen. Second Thessalonians two thirteen. But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God takes us through his word, and when we trust him, we believe him, we rely on him, we trust in him, it's in the context of faith, and he changes us. He changes us. So how can we pursue something that God does? How do we pursue something that he does? Pursue him through the word. He uses his word. Make him your focus. Trust in him. Obey him. 
Fix your eyes on Jesus. Understand what he's doing in the context of your difficulties. Allow his word to direct your heart. Set your heart completely on that. He says, pursue the sanctification. Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. Are you pursuing the sanctification? Are you chasing after it like a dog would chase after a a cat? Are you pursuing the sanctification? Are you pursuing that? Desiring to be more like Christ, allowing his word to change your thinking towards every circumstance in your life. But we're commanded to do it. The Apostle Paul set his heart on that. He said, uh, Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are you pursuing the sanctification? Are you pursuing that? And by the way, we need to do this with those of like mind. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Do you pursue sanctification? Well, notice we see that there's a little statement at the end, but turn back to chapter 12, verse 14. A little qualification here, which is a difficult one. Without which no one will see the Lord. Very interesting statement. What's he saying here? That we will not see the Lord, i.e. we will not be with him forever if we don't pursue sanctification? Is that what he's saying? That seems like it's dependent on us pursuing rather than by his grace we're saved, right? What's What's he saying here? Now, if he said that this way, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which you will not see the Lord, that would be a difficult portion to interpret. But notice he says here, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I'm not sure of what he means here, but my thought in light of what he shared earlier about the wheel tracks and not that someone will be healed rather than stumbled, my thought is that what he's saying here is without the testimony of Christ in our lives through peaceful, loving the brethren and Christ-empowered, holy living, that no one's going to see the Lord. They're not going to see the Lord in your life. You know, if you're not pursuing peace, right relationships with men by the power of the Spirit, if you're not pursuing being more like Christ, no one's going to see Christ in you. I think that's quite possible. Look at Matthew chapter 5. I'm not sure, but I think it's possible. Look at Matthew chapter 5. You know, the Lord manifests his character through his people, by the way. And they can see, or and they can be stumbled, by the way. Right? Look at Matthew chapter 5. And by the way, this is in the context of difficulties, persecution, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You believers, that's what Jesus is saying, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no one's going to see the Lord. 
apart from that. Now, obviously, we need to be set apart initially, but the context here is that ongoing sanctification. Do you pursue sanctification? Do you pursue it? Is your life a testimony of Christ or of the flesh? What's your life testify to? Does it testify of Christ? Does it testify of you? Do you see why it's important to get back on track? It's important. We are witnesses for Christ either negatively through sinful compromise or positively through faithful, trusting obedience. Now, as we come to the end of our text, notice we have some warnings, some threats to practical holiness, threats to pursuing sanctification, threats to pursuing peace, threats to that, threats to that, that we need to see to it that we don't allow these things to happen or be in our midst or our practical sanctification is at risk. You see, pursuing Christ-likeness can be at risk if these things are allowed to be around you. Look at what he says. See to it, verse 15, back in chapter 12, that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causing trouble causes trouble and many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. See to it. Pursue peace. Do these other things. Make straight paths. Set upright those who are faltering. Pursue these things. And then he says here, see to it. See to it. And there are basically, you could, you could say there's three things. Basically, you should see to it. One, see to it that, one, no one falls short of the grace of God. See it to it, two, that. No root of bitterness springs up, cause trouble. See to it, 3, verse 16, that no immoral or godless person is among you like Esau. That's what he's saying. See to it. Now this word translated, uh, see to it, is episcopuntas. That's the way it is here, episcopos. We get our word from that. Episcopal, right? It's epi and scopeo. Scopeo means to scope out, to look at. Epi is an intensified form. Episcopeo, episcopontes. It's often translated oversee or overseer. And certainly elders are to be doing this. They are to be watching out over the flock. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch, same word, over your souls, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Be looking intently. Well, what are all of us to be looking for here so that our sanctification isn't at risk? What do we look out for? First of all, he says here, as we pursue peace and sanctification, we should be looking carefully for, for that no one comes short of the grace of God. Pretty sobering statement. The term come short means to be late, to miss something completely. If you miss your flight, you miss your flight. You're not getting on it. You miss the bus, you miss the bus. You're not getting on the bus. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Folks, this is a command for all of us. And in the context, there were people in the midst of that body who were not saved. And the believers in that body are supposed to see to it that no one in their midst comes short of God's grace. 
that no one would not be saved. The desire is for them to be saved. I have a newsflash for, for, for all of us. Not everyone who comes to church is saved. Not everyone who comes to church. And there were those in this book, in the Hebrews, that were convicted by the word. They were identified, but they weren't saved yet, and they were on the verge of turning away from the grace of God, the only thing that could save them. You see, God poured out his grace. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. All him, nothing from us. And if you turn away from that, you are falling short of the grace of God because we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's God's grace. If you turn away from Jesus, you are falling short of the grace of God. And we are commanded as believers to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. We're to be pursuing peace and sanctification, seeing to it, seeing to it. One pastor writes, we are tempted to hold back from witnessing to those who profess to be Christians because we believe who we believe who are not because we are afraid of offending them. Yet how much greater offense is to their eternal souls if we fail to present Christ? We are exhorted and commanded to make every effort to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Are you willing to speak truth to someone for their sake of their eternal destiny? Don't let Satan deceive you, having wishful thinking. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. You know, I share the gospel all the time here because I know not everyone is saved. I share the gospel because I know not everyone is saved, and I pray for those who are not saved. And I have a concern for them, and I pray you do too. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's a command for all of us. And then notice we're also to watch out so as to rid troublemaking, defiling, unrepentant, godless people. Look for verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. The implication is that these non-believers, if they stay non-believers and stay in the church, they're going to be a problem. They either get saved or they go... But if they stay, there's going to be a problem. That no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, that there be no immoral, godless person like Esau. These are threats to our sanctification, folks. These are threats to pursuing peace. And here we have examples of those here in this passage, those who had turned away from Christ internally, but are staying in the body. They're not leaving the church. They're there in the church. They're there. It's what the word apostasy means. It means to turn away. It's a revolt. It's a defection from Christ. We are to see to it that there are none of these in the body. He says, root of bitterness. Turn to Deuteronomy 29. As I was preparing, I was thinking I should have split this into another sermon, but we'll get through it. Deuteronomy 29, this is where this root of bitterness would come from. This is, they would understand this, the Jews. The Israelites are warned by Moses about one whose heart apostatized. Deuteronomy 29, 18. Uh, Lest there shall be among you a man or a woman, a family or tribe, who turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the other gods of those nations. Lest there be any among you 
lest there, sh- lest there shall be among you a root uh, bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. A root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. And it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The root of bitterness is like, I'm okay with God, but yet I keep going my own way. In order to destroy the watered land with the dry, the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book shall rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. You see, if you know the truth and you're identifying with it and you walk away from it in your heart, you can't be forgiven. It's only through Christ that we are forgiven. And he says here, see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. We saw the trouble earlier in Proverbs, right? We saw the trouble, strife, quarrels, slander, all this stuff. Someone who is who's sinful, causing trouble in the body of Christ. See to it that it doesn't spring up. See to it. Now, brethren, I urge you to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. The constant teaching you learn and turn away from them. See to it doesn't spring up. Speaking of false teachers, these are ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. See to it that it doesn't spring up. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self condemned. See to it it doesn't spring up. And notice it says, causing trouble. It's the opposite of peace. Causing strife in the body of Christ, causing difficulty, because they're not saved. They're a root of bitterness. We've seen that. People complaining about this and this and this and this. Causing people's hearts to be turned. It's a root of bitterness. See to it that it doesn't happen. Folks, when someone comes around you and starts spitting out stuff that is ungodly, don't listen to it about other people. Don't do it. See to it that it doesn't happen. Because he says, and by it, many be defiled. Defiled. The root cause it spurs up, it's not dealt with, people will be defiled. If you let them arise and grow, many will be defiled. They cause trouble. They cause trouble. They bear spiritual poison. Spiritual poison. Again, we've seen that. People say little things. It's poisonous. Don't listen to it. Don't allow it to be in your midst. Root it out, expose it. And how do we do that? Obviously, we begin by sharing the word of God with them. If they're not saved, that they might not fall short of the grace of God, which appears they're not, by the way. Then we might have to share Galatians 6, Matthew 18, Romans 16, Titus 3. How do we do it? We obey God's word in relationship to these people. That's how we do it. Righteously address these roots of bitterness. Get them out. They are threats to your sanctification. They are threats. We've seen that here. Roots of bitterness who have caused people to leave. They're no longer being fed the word of God, at least here. They have hard hearts and bad attitudes towards people that are sinful. Cause trouble. Defile. Very sad. Well, lastly, we're warned. Notice that we are to watch out for the unrepentant, immoral, godless like Esau. He says, uh, verse 16, that there be no immoral, godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal and again i wish we had more time so i'm going to kind of rush through this but the jews would have understood this 
we have the perfect illustration of apostasy, what someone is like who's an apostate, what someone is like. Seeking the things of God for personal benefit. It's an apostate. In Genesis chapter 25, and you can read this, I was going to read it for you, but we have the true story of, uh, of Esau selling his birthright. Genesis chapter 25, Esau was Isaac's firstborn. He was the heir to the promise. And we have the true story of this where he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a single meal. And you think, well, that's not a big deal. But the true story reveals the character of a man who would reject the promises of God for a single meal. He would reject God's promises. And underlying those promises is a Messiah who's going to come, by the way, for a single meal. Here we see this wicked man, Esau, was so focused on the physical relating to food that it was an evidence where he was spiritually. He thought so little of God's word and promises to Abraham and Isaac to whom he was the firstborn, that he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew because he was hungry. You can look at Genesis 25. And then we have a description of him, verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. term immoral, pornea, probably relating to his Hittite wives he had, which greatly troubled his parents. You can see that in chapter 26 of Genesis. And in relation to God, he was godless. He was godless. He sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now, he is what we would call someone who grew up in a Christian home. What do I mean by that? His family believed in Eve's seed, the Messiah who was to come, yet he was godless. He was godless. He thought so little of God's word and the tremendous promises to Abraham and Isaac, to which he was the firstborn, that he sold it for a bowl of stew because he was hungry. But guess what? We see his godlessness even more so because he desired to have the benefits even though he sold it. He wanted the blessing. Look in verse uh, 17. For explaining, you know, afterwards, that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, that's related to the firstborn, which he sold his birthright, by the way, he was rejected. Why? For he found no place for repentance Though he sought for it, that's the blessing, by the way, with tears. He was self-seeking. See to it that no one in the church is like this. Self-seeking, godless people like Esau. See to it. They're, they're a threat to your sanctification, by the way. Watch out for it. Watch out for them. He was rejected. He found no place for repentance, by the way. He was crying. He had a worldly sorrow. Last passage I want to turn to. Turn to Second Corinthians 7. He had a worldly sorrow. And by the way, we see that here. People have a worldly sorrow over the situation, but they're not sorrowful over their sin. They're sorrowful over what's happening to them, the consequences. See to it that no one is like that around you. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. I rejoice, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces what? Repentance without regret. You know, there's a joy. If your children are being disciplined right and you do it properly, they're going to be happy afterwards. They're going to be turning and be, be joyful in that because they're, they're forgiven. Same thing with us. When you've truly forgiven, there isn't any, there's a regret for your sin, but not a regret that you've been forgiven. You're thankful. 
without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Esau was crying over losing the blessing. He wanted his own way. He wanted the blessing. But he thought so little of the promises of God. See to it, you all, that there are no unrepentant apostates like Esau, who are sincere to the point of tears, but they will not repent for their sin. There are threats to your sanctification. There are threats, brothers and sisters. When we see this, we need to address it biblically. To address it righteously. We need to share the Christ, that they wouldn't fall short of the grace of God. We need to share the word of God and relate rightly to these people who appear to be like this, roots of bitterness, whatever it might be. Godless person like Esau. Are you willing to purge out the poison? Are you willing to support the leaders when they're purging it out? We're all to see to it that these things do not arise and defile many. Rid them through obedience to Christ and his word for the good of all. Are you fellowshipping with any of these? Rid of bitterness? Those defiled? We are to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification. So how are we to respond to God's discipline? His loving discipline. Everything he does is good, brothers and sisters. It's hard. It's hard right now. It's hard when you go through those difficulties, even if it's for your sin, whatever it might be. You confessed it. God is using it for good. But how do we respond? Don't treat it lightly. Don't faint. Know he's bringing about holiness in your life. Get, up, get put up straight again. Start running the race. Get your wheel tracks straight. Start obeying the Lord because people are going to see your life and see to it that these unrepentant, godless people don't defile you in your pursuit of holiness and righteousness in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, there are difficult portions here, and it's hard for us to think there are people like this, and yet, if we're willing to admit it, we were like this before we came to Christ. And for those of us who've been saved, you've forgiven us, Lord God. You have saved us. We are so thankful. And Lord, I pray that we as a body would be obedient to these commands, that we would trust your son Jesus, we would fix our eyes on him, that we would pursue peace with all men, Lord God. I pray you convict every one of us of any situation that we are not doing this and convict us when we fail, whether it's in our work or marriage or whatever it is, Lord God, relatives, whatever it is, school, whatever it is, Lord. Please remind us. And Father, I pray we would be those who are obeying your word, pursuing the sanctification. We'd be pursuing you through your word, allowing it to change us, to make us like Jesus. We'd be pursuing it. And Lord, we'd be watching out for those threats to our relationship with your son, Jesus. We'd watch out for that. Thank you, Lord God, for your kindness towards us. Thank you for your word. And we pray that we just trust you and trust your son. It's in his name we pray.